Welcome to the latest Research Talk podcast. My name is Helen Clare from JISC and I'm your host. Our guest today is Dr. Alex Freeman, Executive Director at the Winton Centre for Risk and Evidence Communication at Cambridge University. Before joining the Winton Centre in 2016, Alex had an award-winning 16-year career at the BBC, working on series such as Walking with Beasts, Life in the Undergrowth, Bango's The Theory, and Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. In addition to television, Alex has worked to bring science to the widest possible audience across a range of media, designing websites, games, formal learning resources, and social media content. At the Winton Centre, she has a particular interest in helping professionals such as doctors, journalists, and lawyers communicate numbers and uncertainty better, and in whether narrative can be used as a tool to inform, but not persuade. She's an advocate of open research practices and the reform of the science publishing system, and leads the Octopus platform for research, which we'll hear more about later. Welcome, Alex. Um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background and your professional interests? <laughs> well, how long have you got? I've got a bit of an unusual background. Uh, so originally I studied zoology and did a doctorate studying the evolution of butterfly wing patterns. Uh, but I kind of did that always with a view to wanting to be David Attenborough. Uh, I'd been very inspired by Gerald Durrell and David Attenborough and Richard Dawkins, who was actually my tutor. Um, and uh, so I did a doctorate that um, I was very interested in evolution and animal behavior. But what I really wanted to do was get experience in the field um, and I was at the same time doing lots of work experience for the BBC Natural History Unit. Uh, so then I did move into natural history filmmaking and science filmmaking and did go around the world with David Attenborough and made lots of fun programmes. Um, and then I started branching out uh, into different formats of communication. Uh, so it was the early days of the web. So I started doing lots of things using the web and games and looking at ways of communicating science in lots of different formats and different media. And then I suddenly changed direction at the end of 2016 uh, because I saw what looked like the best job in the world advertised working at Cambridge University with David Spiegelhalter on communication of evidence, which was, again, communicating science, but for a very different audience and in a very different way. So we work on researching the best ways to communicate numbers and risks and evidence in a way that is informative and not persuasive. So instead of trying to tell stories with our data, we are trying to help people make decisions and help them understand what the numbers and the evidence really mean and what the quality of that evidence is. And so it was really through that that I then opened up what's my next phase of uh, interests and different ways of communicating science, which is how to change the scholarly publishing system so that it helps us communicate evidence again, in an informative and not persuasive way. Wow, it sounds like we could do a whole series of podcasts, I think, on your, your career so far. Um, how did you end up becoming an advocate for open access as part of that? Well, really, when I came back to academia, when I went to the University of Cambridge, I was suddenly working with a team of postdoctoral researchers, as well as professional communicators like myself. And I heard the way that academics talk about their work um, and the way that publications really drive their careers. And, you know, they were talking about what story are we going to tell 
in the paper with this data. And I could see why. It's not a bad thing, as it were, necessarily. They were aware that a paper, scientific paper, is a linear narrative. And I heard the way they were thinking about it was so like the way that I had had to think about how I told stories on television or on websites or when I'm writing in the media. And I realized that that was because the incentive structure that they were under, the things that papers are judged on, which drives their careers, are really the same incentives that I was being judged on in the media. You know, how many people read your work, how many people like your work, share your work, and what makes a high impact paper? Um, the advice is always the same kind of advice about, you know, make it clear, make it uh, um, obvious what the impact of your findings might be and keep it short. All these things that don't really lend themselves to telling the whole story. Um, and when I say story, that's actually a bit ironic, telling the whole kind of non-linear narrative, because when we do work, there's all sorts of things that don't work as well as things that do work. There's things that, you know, we find out our original ideas were not held up by the data. And all of these things can be quite difficult to publish, but they're really vital bits of the knowledge um, that we're all putting together when we work in science. Um, so I thought, well, the current publishing system uh, just doesn't support and uh, encourage the sharing of knowledge in the way that would best uh, help everybody understand what has been done, what has been thought of and what was found. So I thought we really need a new platform that is not sort of just disseminating the findings. It's not just sharing uh, the, the story that you can come up with that helps explain everything at the end of a journey. It's something that instead helps you share everything that you're thinking about, everything that you're doing um, as you do it. It's faster, it's fuller, and in the end, it's uh, hopefully fairer because it helps people get credit for the work that they're doing, regardless of what the outcomes of that work are. Could you expand on that a little more about why it's important that researchers or anyone need to see the full picture, that they get to see the failings as well as the successes? Well, science, scientific process is really kind of trial and error. I mean, it's directed trial and error because you learn from what people have done before and you try more things. But because it's trial and error, you need to know what the errors were. So it's no good just sharing um, what did work and kind of even worse, trying to make things that um, came out as negative results, as we call them, uh, sound more positive. You actually need to be completely neutral about what success looks like and just say, this is what I did. And as long as you're doing the process well, it shouldn't matter what the actual findings are, because we're not trying to be right all the time. What we're trying to do is be accurate all the time. Um, it's not a reflection on you if your experiment shows that something that was thought to happen doesn't happen. That's actually as equally valid and useful a finding as finding that what was thought to happen did happen. So uh, that's why we need to share everything that we do. Because if we don't share error, and 
you know, that can mean mistakes as well. If you don't share mistakes, then other people will just have to do them again. And that's a waste of everybody's time and everybody's resources. And, you know, we we need to know this stuff. We can't just hang around. People's lives depend on this. Society depends on scientific knowledge growing. So how do you see this fitting with uh, reproducibility and the reproducibility crisis? Yeah, I mean, the reproducibility crisis, I'd heard of it before I came back to academia, and now I can see it much more from the inside. Um, it's really driven by people, well, by the incentive structure driving people uh, to try to only publish positive results. And again, I'm using positive in sort of ironic quotes because it uh, so much of people's research careers depend on people coming up with theories and then showing that their theory is right. And as I said, that's not really the ideal scientific process. Um, so we should be much more agnostic about um, what our theories actually mean um, and what that what our results show. So publishing and trying to make results always sound positive is going to skew things in one direction. And there's very little incentive in the current structure for people to repeat experiments. Once it's been done, somebody has got the credit and the glory for saying this is what we found. Why would you want to repeat that? Nobody, uh, nobody likes being the second to find something. And so we just need to change the whole way that we think about and approach the scientific process. It's, it shouldn't be about that. It's uh, Everybody's working on their own little piece in the jigsaw, but it's a collaborative jigsaw. And it doesn't matter whether you've got an edge piece, a corner piece, a plain, boring black piece or, you know, exciting piece with colour on. We're all just putting the same picture together and they're all equally important. So that brings us quite nicely to, to the solution that you're, you're working on, which is octopus. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and, and how you came to this solution? Yeah, so as I said, um, I was trying to think of what would a platform look like that actually supported best practice in science? So I'm trying to break that need for a linear narrative that really drives people to try and say, these are my results or rather start with this is my idea, this is my hypothesis, then I did this and my results were this and this shows that I was right. I mean, that is the kind of the classic storyline of a, quotes high impact paper. And as I say, that isn't really reflective of science and it's not really helpful for the scientific community. So what I thought was if we break that need for a narrative and publish things in smaller units, so if I've had an idea, I can publish it as an idea. I don't have to have yet collected any data about it. I mean, a good idea is a good idea, whether or not the data supports it. It can still have been a good idea. So you can publish smaller units as you go. And this has so many consequences. Not only does it mean that, um, that we're judging things on their intrinsic inherent quality and how well they've been done, regardless of their kind of outcomes, as it were, um, going back to the jigsaw analogy, regardless of the color of the piece or the shape of the piece, we're judging whether that, that piece is a good piece. Um, we're 
breaking that um, that need for a linear narrative that drives so much uh, poor practice or questionable research practices, as they're called, and publication bias. But I think it also does other things. It, um, it allows people to specialise. So if I'm a specialist uh, designer of methods and method protocols, or if I am an analyst who is analysing results, a statistician, or if I'm somebody who is really good at implementing findings in the real world, these are all really important roles in the scientific community. But at the moment, they're not really incentivized. People don't really get full credit for doing these jobs because they're only small components of what's traditionally seen as a paper, the outcome of scientific research. So in Octopus, because you can publish each of these small units independently, that means that if I am a statistician analyzing data, or if I'm a specialist data collector, or if I'm a specialist ideas person, I can publish my work pretty, you know, on my own or with a few colleagues uh, quickly, and I can get full credit for it. Um, it makes the whole system more meritocratic because you're getting credit for exactly what you've done, regardless of what your colleagues are doing or whether you've got collaborators. Um, it makes it much faster because you can publish small things and you don't have to wait for the whole end of the scientific process, which could be years down the line. And it makes it more accountable. So if somebody's doing poor practice in your team, that doesn't necessarily affect what you're doing. Um, all of these things, I think, are advantages. So in Octopus, you publish small units. But one thing that I think is critic critical is that you have to link your publications to existing publications in chains. So it means that you can't just publish data without linking it to the method that describes how that data was collected in detail. So this doesn't become a kind of soup of random bits of information. They're linked into chains that makes them useful. And it means that it helps people avoid skipping important bits of sharing what they've done. So you, you don't share your method without explaining carefully what the research question was and what your theoretical rationale was for doing what you did. So you get these branching chains. And then there's one other thing that I want to mention that I think is very important, which is how you assess what good means. Because in the traditional scientific uh, publishing process, um, work is peer-reviewed. And that's really important because you learn a lot through peer review. It's getting people to check your work. And it's also a kind of marker of quality for those who are reading it, although we all know that there are sometimes problems with the peer review process. Some of those problems are because peer reviewers can't be experts on every part of the scientific process. So quite often they're not able to really check the statistical methods in a paper, or perhaps they don't, um, they're not able to talk about the real world implications um, and check that those uh, have been described in a valid way. Uh, but when these are smaller publications, as they would be in Octopus, I think those sort of problems with peer review go away because then peer reviewers would be reviewing a publication that is much smaller and more specialised and therefore specialist peer review is required. Uh, 
But peer review in Octopus is both completely open. So a review, everybody can read everybody else's reviews, which I think is really helpful. And I've learned a lot from reading other people's reviews of publications. But it's also, it's um, viewed as a publication in its own right, which a bit like I was saying about how these smaller publications encourage and incentivize these specialist skills in science, critiquing other people's work is a really specialist skill in itself and really important. So a publication, a review is a full publication It appears on your CV in Octopus the way that any other publication would. And I think that that not only incentivizes it, but recognizes peer review as a really important skill. And finally, and I realize I've been talking for quite a long time about Octopus now, is the rating system. Because reviews are really, really useful, but when you are searching through a lot of publications, and there are a lot of publications out there, then helping rank those publications in your searches, I think ratings can be really, really helpful. And I think this is an area where people are very nervous because nobody likes to think of... uh, scientific work being reduced to a kind of number and I'm I'm really not advocating that but what I do think we can do is predefine what we as a scientific community think good means because when you think about metrics and metrics are very useful everybody uses them Uh, You may not think you're using them, but every time you search for anything in any uh, scientific um, uh, database or on Google Scholar, of course, you are using metrics. So metrics are useful. They help you find what is good work, but it's that definition of what good means that is critical. And I think we need to take control of that. We can't just let informatics companies um, decide what good is. It shouldn't be purely on um, how many people have cited it or any other criteria like that. I think we as a community need to say these are, say, three really important criteria for, for example, a publication of data. Perhaps it is how well annotated that data is to allow others to understand it and use it again. Perhaps it's the size of the data set. I don't know. We have to set these things. But if we predefine those criteria and then allow um, peers to rate the um, publications on those criteria, I think it helps us as a community, as I say, define what good quality means. And that will help us all find our way through what is a vast ream of publications. So in a nutshell, Octopus is designed to try to remove poor incentives, uh, incentives that have grown um, without design, and replace them with incentives that have been designed specifically with good scientific practice in mind. That's great. It's good to hear so much detail about about the peer review, which is one aspect I'm quite interested in. How do you see Octopus addressing some of the potential issues around um, open peer review in that 
it can possibly lead to maybe more bland, timid, less honest reviews because of the sort of unequal power balance. If somebody's reviewing, a, you know, a piece of, of work from um, a superior or a, a more advanced researcher. I think this is a, a really important concern. Um I mean, I myself feel it when I'm writing open reviews is that you're just thinking, oh, how do I phrase this? I think in a way that's a good thing sometimes because, uh, you know, we all hear about peer reviews that are awfully written and hopefully open peer review will um, make people uh, more careful in their writing in that sense. But the fact that peer reviews in Octopus are a publication in their own right means that they are rated as well, the same way that any other publication is. And so I think by setting what we think a good review is, uh, defining the criteria for the rating of peer reviews, will help people who are writing reviews and people who are um, you know, reading them and then uh, sort of understand what a good review should be like. Because I think one of the problems is that we don't really have open review. We're not used to it as a scientific community. Um, And I think as open review becomes more normal, as ratings of review and the criteria that reviews are rated on are public and more transparent, then we will come to understand as a community what a review should look like. And they will become written like any other publication. So they're not a throwaway comment at the bottom of a, you know, a blog on a news site. They are not um, a personal. They shouldn't be personal. They should be critiquing carefully uh, both positives and negatives of a publication, um, regardless of who wrote that publication. So I'm hoping that increasing open review and increasing transparency over what good means and looks like will help people all set their expectations for how these things should be written. Um, but I do think it's uh, I do think it's a change of culture, and I think a lot of what Octopus is aiming to do is changing the culture of science community at the moment because it's a research culture that is so hierarchical and we need to lose some of that because hierarchy breeds poor practice. So so what has the feedback been like so far from the, the research community? Well, there is nervousness about open reviews. Um, and in fact, one person has suggested what I think is a genius suggestion uh, that perhaps all publications of any type, including reviews, for the first, say, six months are completely anonymous. And maybe during that um, anonymous time, it's like a golden period where all ratings are worth extra. So it's like a a double blind period. Um, And then after six months, everybody's name appears on their publications. I I think that's a really interesting idea. Um, I'd like to think that we don't need it, but perhaps we will. It's something we could explore, certainly. I think you've explained a lot about the benefits so far of, of Octopus, but what do you see as the barriers? You mentioned research culture. Are there any other barriers? Yeah, I mean, you know, like all things, the technology, well, not like all things, <laughs> like many things, the technology is the easy bit. And coming up with the idea and the design was also relatively easy. The difficult bit is getting it adopted. Um, and I think 
I don't think it's an impossible task. So I get very frustrated when people say, well, you'll never make it work. People will never change. So why are you bothering? Well, if everybody took that attitude, we'd never have any change or any progress. So I think you've got to take things one step at a time. First of all, build the platform. Well, first of all, design the platform, then build the platform. But now we're in the phase where that is well underway and we're getting ready for launch in next spring, spring 2022. And we have really important political um, as well as financial support. And so now I think my job and the job of the whole Octopus team is to start explaining um, how Octopus can make people's lives better. Because I think about the first day that somebody showed me Google. And it was, you know, back in those days, for those of you who can't remember, we used to have a whole flotilla of different search engines, which you'd use for different search purposes. And then somebody showed me Google and I'd pretty much never used another search engine again. Sorry, shouldn't be advertising Google. But it was that fact that somebody had designed something that made my day-to-day -day job easier and better. It was easy to switch to it. So what I hope to do with Octopus is to make it instantly from day one easier and better for people in all um, different kinds of stakeholders. So not just researchers, but for funders, for institutions. And if everybody finds that it's useful, that it fits in with their existing workflows and is better than their existing workflows, it should be a virtuous circle. Because once funders and institutions are using it, then that will drive, obviously, researchers who want to be recognized by funders and institutions. And once researchers are there, institutions and funders will want to use it. So if everybody takes this big step at once, we'll all be suddenly in a better place because it's designed to make everybody's lives better. We all need to adopt it at once. I mean, I know that's a slightly naive way of looking at it. But that's the reality that if we all took this step, it would be an instantly better world. We're not all going to take that step. It's not going to switch on on one day in spring next year and everybody will be using it the next day. But I'm trying to design it so that people can take baby steps in their everyday lives. So for researchers, for instance, it will be preceded with an existing structure of interesting research questions that we've extracted from the existing published literature. And those will be linked out to papers on that, old-fashioned papers. But from that, you can then start publishing reviews of those papers, which will then be useful, open reviews that you can read of those papers. Everything will be linked into these branching chains. So it will be an a useful and different way to search and find research that's related to your topic of interest. And then it's a great place to publish things that you wouldn't publish elsewhere. Perhaps you've got some small data sets or some hypotheses or ideas that you've never been able to take forward. And then eventually, well, hopefully quite quickly, you'll realize that this is almost like a patent office for science. This is somewhere you can publish quite quickly you can sort of date and timestamp your work, and then that appears on your CV that institutions can instantly view. So you are incentivized to get your ideas and your work and your data into Octopus as quickly as you can. I mean, I'm not saying don't spend time to write it properly because obviously that's important, 
But it's far quicker than writing a whole paper and going through the peer review process, the closed peer review process. So I'm hoping that everything we're doing in the design of it will help people take those steps, make it easy for people, make it useful for people. And then hopefully that process will become a cumulative virtuous circle, as I say. You talk of everyone taking this step at the same time, mm. um, but is it right to say that Octopus is focused on the STEM approach to research? Ah, oh, yes. No, I'm really sorry for <laughs> all humanities and arts people. I'm completely ignoring you. I'm so sorry. I am a scientist at heart and always have been. So, yes, um, thinking of the whole of STEM for me is a massive uh, area and domain in itself. Arts and humanities, I'm afraid I have no idea what your workflows are and your research processes. So I am keen to learn and maybe Octopus can help you as well. Um, but uh, yeah, at the moment, I am just starting with the whole of STEM. <laughs> it's a quite a radical sort of new approach. How do you see, is this still a role for, for publishers? Is this still a role for, for journals? Is this the end of the journal article? Really good question. I mean, initially, when I first came up with the thought of Octopus, I did think of it as, I have to admit, a, a replacement for journals. But I don't see it that way now, because what I've realised is that there are two important roles, well, at least two, but I can see two important roles that journals currently do. One is dissemination of findings to people who need to know what the latest is. They don't need to know the full detail of all the research methods, and they certainly don't want to be looking at raw data. They are quite often practitioners or people who are implementing this in the real world or just want to keep up with an area of, of findings in science. And that is, in fact, probably, I think, journals would say the most popular area of their output, the sort of news and views, the editorials, the reviews. And that's a really important um, area in which the old incentive structure, the linear narrative, the clarity, the shortness are all really good factors to work to. And so I think journals serve that purpose incredibly well. And that's probably their original purpose. So I would say journals should carry on that carrying that function of dissemination of findings to those who want to know them. What I think has grown um, and possibly uh, journals have taken on and are less well set up to do or less incentivized to do is to be the primary research record, the place where find not just findings, but the whole methodology, all the data is described in full in a way that would allow somebody else literally in that narrow field to reanalyze or, or reproduce that research. And that's a second and really important kind of communication. And that's what I see Octopus as taking on. So that's all the complex areas of peer review and um and essentially uh, also um, a kind of guardian of the quality and leaving journals to do dissemination of findings.
That's quite interesting because usually it, the publishers sort of say that their role is about the quality and about the peer review, so it kind of switches it switches it around a bit. I mean, I'm not in the publishing world, but I imagine that the peer review process, all of that, is uh, takes up a disproportionate amount of their time, their effort, and you know, frankly, their resources, their money for less payback, as it were, from their audiences, because I suspect they see it that most of their audiences want short summaries, easy to read of their findings. Um, So I suspect, and it would be really interesting to hear directly from publishers, I've never had such a frank conversation with a publisher, that they would see the advantages to splitting those two functions. Sort of related to that, um, there have been some commentators recently sort of criticising the octopus concept as undermining the role of journals in curating science and have highlighted that octopus might become just a a free-for-all for for poor quality research outputs. What's your view on that? I mean, you see it with some platforms that um, lowering the barriers to entry means that you get more low-quality work published there. You know, we've seen problems with preprint servers. We've seen it in other platforms. I still think that lowering barriers to entry is part of meritocracy and important, and I think speeding up the pro- part of speeding up the process of publication, which is also important. But I do think that adding review and ratings is part of the quality control in Octopus, and I think that is the bit that um, we need to get right and that will help avoid people being lost in a soup of the poor quality publications. Because once you've got good rating system and a review system that is being used, and that's important, then it becomes easier for people to search and find high quality publications. And One of the problems that people always have come across when um, designing new platforms is incentivizing other people to give feedback. Because at the moment, there are a lot of people writing papers and there's no incentive to do anything other than write about your own work. You get nothing back from being a peer reviewer. Um, And so it's obvious that that drives people to only think quite narrowly, put my head down, do my own work, get it published. Why would I want to read other people's work except in order to write the introduction to my own work? Um, So they're designing a system that incentivizes peer review and makes it something that people want to do is crucially important. And that's what I've tried to do in Octopus by treating peer review as a publication in its own right and having it rated the same way that any other publication and having it appear on your CV in Octopus like any other publication. I hope that we can change the perspective about what science is all about. It's not just about publishing your own work. It's about being part of a collaborative process critiquing, um, writing, as I say, and being a specialist in different areas and recognising those specialisms. I think it's rethinking the way that we approach 
our scientific research. It's not all about the output. It's all about the doing and the sharing of that doing and doing to the best of our abilities and recognising that we are all uh, cogs in a very complex machine of knowledge generation. And every cog can be important. What's important is doing that work to the best of our abilities. And I hope that the octopus structure allows us to judge what to the best of ability looks like in a publication. Great. It's, it's been great to hear about this and it'll be fascinating to see how it all develops. Uh, you mentioned it's not Octopus isn't being released until spring 2022. Can you just tell us a bit more about the development and can people go and try it somewhere now? Or Yes, absolutely. So we built a prototype to allow us to test both user test and kind of, you know, ourselves test what it might look like. So you can go to octopuspublishing.org and that allows you to um, try out the Octopus platform, as it were. Um, That's obviously just a kind of scratch space for exploring it. And over the next few months, we're doing as much user testing as we can. So there's a feedback form there. You can send us your feedback or you can come to one of our user testing um, sessions. If you follow us on Twitter at at science underscore octopus, we tweet there about user testing sessions and places where you can um, try things out and feed back to us more directly. Um, And through that user testing process, we're hoping to get the platform um, as polished and smooth as we can for our spring launch. And then paddling hard under the water and behind the scenes, we're also doing that work that I I described about pre-populating the Octopus database with research questions extracted from all the open access papers that there are at the moment. And that we're using natural language processing to pull out these research questions and then build chains of them, which is quite an interesting project and quite tricky. But uh, again, if you're a natural language processing expert and listening to this, then do get in touch because uh, any advice, very welcome. It's um, like everything we do. It's all open. We have all our repositories open on GitHub. This is a a community project. So take part. Thanks so much, Alex. Um, I have to invite you back to hear all about David Attenborough and Richard Dawkins. Yep, I've got millions of stories about exciting accidents that have happened all around the world and disastrous filming. Yep. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Research Talk podcast. And thanks to Alex for a great discussion. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please message us on podcast at jisc.ac.uk.